Uriin ang Panginoon. Praise the Lord. In one week, it will be 107 years since that fateful night. In the frigid air and the ice-floated waters of the North Atlantic, when the unthinkable happened, the unsinkable ship, the Titanic, sank into the deep. And even after over a century, the story still resonates. Not a person in the crowd is probably not familiar with the name and the event of the Titanic that sank in the upper Atlantic on that fateful night in April 1912. The pastor, Nicky Gumbel, tells the story of the sinking in a way that reminds us of the danger not only to a ship, but to a soul. Why was it that this massive, most luxurious, most expansive luxury liner ship ever made to that point, which was said to be unsinkable, why was it said that? Why was that the described of it? And why was it wrong? The ingenuity of the engineering mind of man was such that the ship had been constructed with multiple compartments, cells, large chambers that uh, provided for the buoyancy. Have you ever looked, gone down to Long Beach and looked at the, at the luxury liners today or the Queen Mary and you wonder how such a massive, huge tub of iron and steel and nuts and bolts can possibly remain afloat in the water. But of course, it's all about displacement and buoyancy. And I don't have the mind to understand these things. But we take it for granted that someone knows how to keep those things afloat, right? These compartments filled with air and space were intended to keep the Titanic afloat. And of course, it was known that there were icebergs in the Atlantic. But the understanding was that with careful navigation, they would not be an undue threat. But as for the Titanic, so it is true for us. We may look confidently at the life ahead of us and think, I know how to navigate this. I know where I'm going and I know what to do. And I've got it within me to manage whatever storm may come along. And after all, I can see the tip of the iceberg. But the enemy has for you and I, Mangakapatid, he has things beneath the surface, often much larger, much more portentous than we realize. That is more dangerous than we realize and which can grab us in the vulnerable underbelly of our soul. Anywhere where we are vulnerable, where we allow pride to go before our own fall. You know what happened with the Titanic? was that it hit an iceberg. You know that it sank. And you probably know that for decades and decades, the wreckage was not found. There was a general notion of where it was, but no one was able to get deep enough because the ocean is very, very deep and very, very cold most of the time there. And so the wreckage remained elusive. But it was supposed that a massive underwater structure 
of iceberg had gashed along the whole length of the Titanic. Surely that was the only way that such a massive ship could have been taken down. But when in the 1980s the wreckage of the Titanic actually was found, do you remember that? If you're old enough to remember that, which is a funny thing to say, but has to be said these days. I remember when they found it and what an extraordinary accomplishment that was. And one of the great surprises was that the gash in the side of the ship left by the iceberg did not run the whole length. In fact, it was a relatively minor gash relative to the size of the ship. But what had not been considered in that compartmentalization was because of the barriers between the space, the waters that rushed into the forward chambers quickly rose higher than they would have if they had been able to spread farther. You understand that dynamic. And as they rose higher and swamped one chamber, it rose over the head of the bulkhead and filled the next chamber and the next, like cells in an old-fashioned ice cube tray. I've got one in my office if you need me to show you, because you may not be old enough to remember ice cube trays. I don't know. Most of us, I think, are. One after the other, each of those compartments filled to overflowing until the ship could no longer sustain. It was dragged down by the weight of the water within. It's easy for us to compartmentalize our lives, isn't it? Here, in this place, in this chamber, it's Sunday morning and we are Christians. But tomorrow is Monday, different day, different compartment, different way of living, a little more navigating on our own. It's easy to say, I can allow a little bit of indulgence in this part of my life as long as I segregate it away from the rest. I'll fill up on Sunday with spiritual things, but during the week, maybe I can allow just a little bit of lust, just a little bit of laziness, just a little white lie to help smooth things along or improve my position just a little bit, a little bit taken here that nobody will miss and nobody will notice, a little release of anger because after all, look what she did, look how he spoke and they deserve it and you know what, I've had a bad day, I've had a long week, I've had a hard life and I'm allowed and anyway, I can draw the curtain over that, I can put the lid down on that but friends, the enemy, like a titanic iceberg beneath the surface of our soul, uses those opportunities, those small cracks, those little gashes, to flood the compartments of our lives with all the wickedness and weight of shame and guilt and the darkness and disease and destruction that comes from every seed of sin that you and I would plant. The Lord is not a compartmentalizer. He says, I'm jealous. I don't want one cell of you. I want all of you. I won't compete with other things for my attention, says the Lord. The Lord says, you won't have any other gods before me. Me and me only. All or nothing. Here on this table from which we will partake today is all of Christ. All of his body, all of his blood, broken and poured out for us so that you and I could belong, heart and soul, body and being, all to him. Now the glorious thing about God is 
He floods us from within too, but he floods us with light. He floods us with goodness, his goodness. And if there are barriers, because we do raise up walls, we do draw curtains, we do try and hide, today is a day when the Lord says once again to you and I, let me overflow those barriers. Let me break down those walls. Let me come into every part of you and cleanse and heal and repair and restore. Last week, we talked about the kindness of God and how his kindness is really an opportunity for repentance. It's God saying, I want you to come in and be mine. I want to come into you and make you mine. I want you to have life and that more abundantly. God's kindness is the opportunity for you and I to experience God's goodness. I'm going to say that again. God's kindness is the opportunity for you and I to experience God's goodness. Now you say that to the person next to you, will you? God's kindness is our opportunity to experience God's goodness. This is part of a series that we are doing, as you well know, out of Galatians 5, on the fruit of the Spirit, and we've had an extended time in it. Today is the final sermon in this part of the series. We will come back to it, but after today, we'll take a pause, and I'm going to turn to a three-part sermon series that will lead us into Easter, a message next, next week for Palm Sunday, a Good Friday message. And uh, I'm so glad for the thoughts that Pastor Henry shared about Good Friday. I want to say right now, as we talk about the goodness of God, it may strike you as ironic, as it has me, that we talk about that Friday on which Jesus died on the cross as a Good Friday. Because it's also sometimes called Black Friday or Dark Friday because of the sadness and sorrow of the day. And for those who were present there who loved the Lord, for his mother, for his faithful followers, of which there were few, mostly the women that remained, and in fairness, because they were less likely to be prosecuted, most of his disciples scattered. John apparently there, at least at enough distance to hear from the Lord. For them, it was the worst day, the worst day ever. But we call it Good Friday, because on the cross, the goodness of God is most visible to the world. It is the love of Jesus Christ sacrificed for us. We'll talk about that on Good Friday, and then there will be a message on Easter Sunday that ties in with those, and I'm going to talk about fig trees. I'll have more to say about that next week, obviously, but in this year of fruitfulness, as we approach the celebration and the reverent recollection of Holy Week and Resurrection Sunday, I want to share with you how three times in the life and earthly ministry of Jesus, the fig tree plays a pivotal role and how it factors into the final week of his life. So that's a forecast of things to come. And then after Easter, we'll come back and conclude this series on the remaining fruit of the Spirit. But today, as we talk about goodness, I want to remind you that it comes as kind of a pear in my mind. And I know it's fruit of the Spirit, but I don't mean that kind of pear. Papa no mosibian satagalog pear that you eat. Peras. That's what you call a cognate. Same word. Different language. I don't mean that kind of pear. But I mean 
that kindness and goodness go together like a team. And so this is sort of a part two of last week's message. Last week we talked about the character of the king. Kindness that's more than just niceness, but that is really about focusing on the character of the Lord in a way that calls us to be kind to others in a loving, sacrificing way. And as I talked last week, I said it's the preface, it's the foundation for the outworking of good behavior, or what the Bible calls good works. You know, as evangelical Christians, we often are so eager to pronounce that we reject the notion of a works-based salvation, that we run the risk, as right as that reality is, it is true that our salvation is not based on works, but we run the risk of forgetting the other part of that pair, which is that salvation always produces good works. In other words, good works do not procure salvation. You cannot purchase salvation. You cannot purchase relationship with God through good works. You don't need to. The kindness of God has made it available to you and I, free and clear. We come to him with repentance because it's the only way to turn from facing away from him to turn facing toward him. That's all repentance really is. But when we are in him and he is in us, goodness comes forth through us. It is the way of giving and the way of growing that God ordains for those who are rooted in his vine. Goodness, it's the way of giving and the way of growing. Turn to the other person around you and say, goodness is giving and growing. Now, I'm going to ask you to give me the opportunity to grow a little here because I want to read a verse out of Luke chapter 3 to you in Tagalog, and it will be faltering and slow, but I want to give it a shot. Are you willing to give me that chance? Itatapan sa apoy. Maraming salamat po. I'm glad that you applaud that verse because it's not a verse that you would necessarily applaud otherwise, right? See, I was clever that way. I got you, I got you into liking a passage that's actually rather frightening. And it's a phrase that we've heard before, but this time it's coming out of someone else's mouth. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. As we began this year of fruitfulness, we heard Jesus make essentially that statement in John chapter 15 when he was talking to his disciples on the last night of his life here on earth. And he was saying, any branch in me that doesn't bear fruit is cut off and gathered up and put into the fire. Do you remember that? That was Jesus. Weeks later, when we looked at the parable of the good tree and the bad tree, a good tree produces good fruit. It can't produce bad. A bad tree produces bad fruit. It can't produce good. And a bad tree that produces bad fruit will be cut down and burned. Do you remember Jesus saying that? Before Jesus even began his earthly ministry, there was someone paving the way for him. You know him, John the Baptist. And it's John the Baptist speaking in Luke chapter 3. 
John the Baptist saying, the axe is already at the root of the trees, so produce good fruit, because if you don't, you'll be cut down and burned. It's a message calling for people to come to God. It's the message of repentance. He was preaching the gospel. In Luke chapter 3, he was preaching the good news. You remember that gospel literally means good news. The reason why I'm turning to Luke chapter 3 and the message of Luke is to remind you that the good news is not just the message that Jesus himself spoke during his three and a half years. It is the eternal message of God to humanity, which is there is a judgment and I'm giving you the kindness and the goodness of the opportunity to repent right now. Now you and I, if we're here this morning as followers of Jesus Christ, we can say, I have turned to the Lord. But as we've spoken so many times in this year, we are reminded by this passage that if we are really in the Lord, then we are to be cultivating good works. We cannot necessarily produce them, but these people who hear John preach, they, as they repent, as they turn to God, they're going to say, what must we do? See, John is giving them the goodness of God, good news. He's telling them there's time to repent and God will accept your repentance and God will produce his goodness in you. And so they're saying, what should we do? And John says, be baptized. I'm going to baptize you in water, but there's one coming who will baptize you in fire. Receive those baptisms. And then do these things. Goodness is about behavior. There are things for us to do. God expects us to exert some effort in our Christian walk. We don't just lay back and say, do it all, God. Because God is not producing a slovenly, lazy portion of people. He is producing fruitful, growing givers, fruitful, advancing fighters, faithful, kind, and good children. Once again, as we said last week, God's kindness is really about righteous living. The prophet Micah in the Old Testament says, what is required of a human? In other words, as the people say to John the Baptist, what should we do? The prophet Micah already told them, act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. Not away from him, not in opposition to him. Kindness, therefore, is reflected through goodness, and goodness is a right heart and righteous behavior. You tracking with me? In Galatians chapter 5, when Paul is writing about the fruit of goodness, agasthosene, agasthosene, he is writing about uprightness of heart and uprightness of life. Life lived fully, openly, in the Lord, with the Lord, in God's direction, which shows kindness. Now this term, this Greek word that Paul uses for goodness, it only shows up in biblical writings or ecclesiastical writings in Koine Greek. That is the ancient Greek of the first century when Paul was writing. So it is a uniquely Christian Greek term, that is to say, not, not probably that it was created by Christians, but that Christians latched on to a term that wasn't necessarily found very frequently anywhere else, and hasn't therefore survived for us in other popular Greek writing of the time. It is 
particularly God's goodness, God's way of living. Kabutihan ng Dios. Of course, it is an expression of love, as all the fruit are, and it is a fruit of the Spirit. Therefore, goodness is a loving and fruitful manifestation of God's kingdom character, and it's a result of repentance. Now, as we work through the passage in Luke chapter 3, I want to look at some partnering passages in the New Testament that reflect on these. I've already talked about how it is bunga ng pagsisisi, Am I saying that right? A fruit of repentance. It's a result of repentance. It, it comes when we turn to God and it calls us to give freely. Magbigay ng tulong. To give charitably. To give of what we have to those who have need. To live our life in the light of God. To live loving justice. Nakatira sa liwanag. We want to live in the light. We don't want compartments that close us off from the view and the vision of God because those compartments make us vulnerable to the darkness of the devil. We want to love justice. And we need to be ready for the results of God's goodness in us. As I said, God's goodness is most on display on Good Friday, a day when God's own Son, who knew no wrong and did no wrong, died on the cross, a convict, died through the result of injustice, but really because he gave up his own life. But when you and I show the goodness of God, when we are kind and loving, don't expect the world to applaud. There's a, there's a wonderful song written by the Christian songwriter Michael Card that says, when you do these things, don't expect them to applaud. Just tell yourself, remind yourself, I've become the work of God. Ephesians 2.10, you are God's workmanship. You are God's good work. But the world doesn't like God's good works, not the spirit of the world. Persecution comes. Paghahanda parasa pag-uusi. You need to be prepared to face the trials and challenges that come from being good. The irony is, if you're bad, the world readily receives you. But if you're good, the world rejects you and calls you bad. Because the world, the worldly system, is ruled by the devil, the demonic mindset, which calls good bad and bad good. That's what Paul writes in Romans. And the whole world has gone after the fallacy of that logic. But don't lose heart. Jesus has overcome the world. Amen. So God's goodness in you prepares you for the wickedness around you. Goodness is, it's a result of repentance. John the Baptist is going all around preaching that. Repent, repent, repent. And that is, listen, the pivotal preparation for the presence of Jesus Christ. If we want the presence of the Lord to really be manifest in our midst, if we want the gospel of God to be really powerful in the world around us, you and I need to be people who readily, regularly repent. Every month when we come to the table of the Lord, we can remind ourselves that our sins are forgiven in Him. We don't sin the way we used to as believers in Christ, but we don't deny that we still falter. 
we still fail. And in him, we have forgiveness for our sins. We model repentance and we preach it. Don't be afraid to call people to turn away from their evil. Don't be afraid to call out what is evil. Do it in a kind way, but remind people of this reality. You cannot live along that line forever. Somewhere the Titanic sinks and the wreckage is great. So John is preparing for the presence of Jesus by preaching the message of repentance. And people come out and get baptized. You want to talk about seeker sensitive. You want to talk about somebody trying to bring them in with kindness. Listen to what John has to say. You brood of vipers. Who warned you about the coming wrath? Listen, my friends, I'm not saying you need to be obnoxious or rude, but I think the contemporary church in America has gone overboard in this notion that somehow we're going to love people into the kingdom by just telling them what they want to hear and not ever offending. That doesn't bring people into the kingdom. It just scratches tickling ears. People need to know the truth. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So this is the first thing. John is saying, if you really repent, focus on showing it. Live a life that demonstrates it. Ask for it. Don't just think you have it because you're children of Abraham. Don't just think you have it because you're Jews. And let me say, don't just think you have it because you call yourself a Christian or because you belong to a church. That's the same thing. That's what John is saying. And Jesus said it too. That's not what produces fruit. That's when he says the axe is ready to cut down wherever there is not fruitfulness. That's why they say, well, then what should we do? (laughs) Pastor, are you saying we shouldn't be Christians? Are you saying we shouldn't come to church? Of course, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is be real Christians who don't come to church. They are the church. So you go out and be the church in the world. And they say, and let us say, how do we do that? You do that by giving, giving of what you have, giving of yourself. It is a call of God to charity. John tells them, here's what you do. If you've got two shirts, give one of them away to someone who doesn't have any. If you've got food, give it to people who don't. It's a very simple statement with a very profound truth underneath it. What you have, you don't have to keep. You don't have to hold on to what you have. Well, you say, well, what if you only have one shirt? Then share it with somebody or maybe go without a shirt and pray for the Lord to give you another shirt. Whoever gives, God will give to them. The scripture says that when you give to the poor, you're lending to God. How marvelous is that? You're giving to someone who can't possibly repay you, but you're lending to someone who owns it all. And he says, I repay with interest. But that's not why we give to the poor. We give because we trust that God has already given to us. So we don't have any need. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have no needs unmet. You may feel that you have needs unmet. And the life of the disciple is to look to the Lord to be aware to me made aware of how God has already provided and one of the greatest ways you can do that is to start giving away what you have do you have clothes in your closet that you can give away give them away do you have food in your pantry that you can give away give it away do you have money in the bank that you can give away 
give it away. And you say, well, I need all the clothes in my closet and all the food in my pantry and all the money in my bank. And what Jesus says to you is, no, you don't. Did Jesus have money in the bank? Or food in the pantry? Or even a pantry? Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. He was completely dependent upon the kindness of strangers, as it were, to quote Tennessee Williams. He was one who lived by charity. That is, he received charitable offerings, and yet even Jesus gave. In fact, when the tax came to due in the temple, and Peter said, we've got to pay it, we've got nothing to pay it with, Jesus said, do you really think that God is asking for his son to pay a tax? Nevertheless, we'll do it. Go find a fish, open its mouth, and the coin will be there. You have whatever you need if you are living in the place of trusting in God and giving to others. I am myself convinced, said Paul to the church in Rome, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness. You're filled with knowledge. You're competent to instruct one another. And brothers and sisters... I am myself convinced of this about you. You are filled with God's goodness and you are able to show it to others. I've written quite boldly on some points, says Paul. And I will tell you, I've preached quite boldly on some points because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to you. Now then, Paul goes on to talk about how he is planning to come to Rome He wants to go to Spain and he's going back to Jerusalem and he calls on the church in Rome to assist me on my journey there. Paul is not only an apostle. Paul is not only a church planter and a pastor. Paul is a missionary. In fact, Paul might have considered himself a missionary more than anything else. When he begins his letter to the church in Rome, Paulus Dulos, Jesu Christo, Kletos Apostolos, Aphoros Menos Ace, Evangelion Theo. That's the Greek phrase of Romans 1 that says, I am just a servant slave of God cut out for a mission. And the mission is the goodness of God shared with the world. He's a missionary and he says, I need your help. I need your money. In fact, you know there are letters of Paul that reflect that people accused him of being money grubbing. Because he was constantly raising money. And Paul said, well, those people are fools, basically. Have I ever asked anything from you? Didn't I work to support myself? I didn't ask anything from you for myself, but only for the mission, only for the churches. In fact, the church in Jerusalem, which was the mother church of all Christianity at that time, and is still the source of Christianity, was very poor. The Palestinian Jews were very poor. It was not a wealthy church. The Roman Christians were far wealthier. They had much more affluence. So he's saying, make some Balak Bayon for the Jerusalem church. (laughs) Macedonia and Achaia did it, he says. These other churches made the contribution for the poor among the Lord's people so that they could share with them their material blessings. It's no good to say, I love, I love, I love, God bless, God bless, God bless, and then not give a thing. We've got to give. And the more you give, the more you will receive from the Lord in order to live your life in his light and his goodness. The tax collectors, they came to be baptized and they say, well, what, what should we do? 
And he says, don't collect more than you are required to. The soldiers, the Roman soldiers, the Hebrew temple police, what should we do? Don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Well, no duh, right? I mean, this seems straightforward enough. But you know what he's saying? Love justice. Don't be unfair. Don't manipulate. Don't trick. Don't connive. Don't try and gain for yourself. Don't use your position in order to get from other people what doesn't really rightfully belong to you. If you trust the Lord, you also recognize that you fear the Lord. And God sees and God knows. Injustice will have a response from God. We are to be giving, not grabbing. That's the goodness of God. Follow God's example, Paul says to the church in Ephesus. As dearly loved children, you see, since you're God's children, live like it. God's children wouldn't act that way. God loves justice. His children won't be unjust. Just like Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, offering and a sacrifice for us. So, sacrifice your life and love God's goodness. Don't let there be any hint of sexual immorality. Don't let there be any kind of impurity. Don't let there be any greed in you. Because these are improper for God's holy people. There shouldn't be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking. That's out of place for God's people. Instead, thanksgiving. The Greek word is Eucharist. This is the Eucharist. We give thanks to God because of his indescribable gift to us, which is Christ Jesus. The life of Christ in us, which is good this. You can be sure of this, says Paul, to the church, says the word to us. No immoral, impure, greedy person. That kind of person is an idolater. That's what idolatry is. That's what it looks like. That's the fruit it produces. In other words, that's somebody who's worshiping something other than God. No one like that has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Don't let anyone deceive you. Because God's wrath comes down on people who live like that. You and I once were in that darkness, but now we are light. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out or prove, demonstrate, show what pleases the Lord. The fruit of the Spirit is fruit of light. You may remember that I preached on this passage in the year of light. God's light in us seeds us with the fruit of that light and prepares us to face persecution. As we give and grow God's way, we face the wrath of the world. People were so impressed by the ministry of John that they thought he might be the Messiah. He made it clear because of his humility, right? He showed mercy, the message of repentance. He loved justice. He said, don't cheat, don't steal, give away. And he walked humbly with his God. I'm not the Messiah, but I know who is. 
That's how you and I can live. That's another reason why I wanted to turn to Luke 3 and the ministry and message of John the Baptist today because you and I can relate to John the Baptist in a way that, at least in one way, that we cannot relate to Jesus. We are not the Messiah, but we can point to him. When you start to live with the goodness of God showing forth from you, people will recognize the Christ-like quality in you. And that's the time to remember, don't receive their praise on your own behalf, but say it's because of God. If there are people who do compliment on that, and there are, show them the Lord, point them to the Lord, and tell them about the baptism of water and the Holy Spirit. Emphasize the Holy Spirit in your life. If every compartment of the Titanic had been filled with the Holy Spirit rather than with water, it wouldn't have sunk. It would have flown, I suppose. So you and I, don't be filled with the way and the weight of the world, waterlogged in the wiles of the devil, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you'll be clothed in the Holy Spirit. You'll be armored in light and prepared for what you face. John exhorted the people and proclaimed God's goodness to them. And for that, he emphasized fruitfulness. Bear fruit. The winnowing fork of God is in his hand. He wants to gather the harvest in. So, emphasis on the Holy Spirit and an emphasis on fruitfulness. But when John rebuked Herod, the ruler because his marriage was unrighteous. He had married his brother's wife, which went against the Jewish law. And by the way, Herod was ostensibly a Jew. So it was more than just John saying, everyone should follow Jewish law. He was saying a Jewish king who says he's a Jewish king should follow God's law. And Herod did not. And Herod was wicked and evil in so many other ways, which John did not hesitate to say. John was locked up in prison. And you know the story. He didn't just lose his freedom. He lost his head. He lost his life. You and I, we are called to give up our lives for the Lord and for one another. We're called to speak the truth in love and to show love to one another. And as Paul wrote to the church in 2 Thessalonians, he boasted about their perseverance and their faith in all the persecutions and trials. In other words, that church was facing and enduring many persecutions and trials. And Paul said, I'm proud of you. And we encourage the rest of the body because of you. All of this is evidence that God's judgment is right. It shows God's goodness and God's justice. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. What a privilege. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. He will give relief to you who are troubled, and he'll give relief to us who care about you and pray for you too. This will happen when Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire. You see, the people who are building up, racking up the works of the flesh, those flesh works are going to be burned down in the fire of the coming of Christ. But you and I, we're going to be raised up in that fire. And anyone who says, I want to receive that fire with joy, Jesus says to you, the promise comes today. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling.
worthy. Remember, we talked about this last week. Fit for its purpose. It's the very root of the Greek word for kindness. All have turned away and become worthless or unworthy. There is no one who does good except God. But God will make you worthy as you repent and receive his power that brings to fruition, to fruitfulness, your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. The emphasis on the Holy Spirit, the power of God that produces fruitfulness in you and results in his good works coming out of you. As we bear this fruit of the Spirit, we reveal individually and collectively the character of the King. We reveal kindness, real kindness to the world, demonstrated through godly love, giving, living justly, living boldly, true goodness, the goodness of God.